Thanks for coming out. Thanks for getting, Zane, good to see you. Uh, I know that it's, it's not always easy to fit church into our busy calendars, especially on a holiday weekend. And so for you to come through uh, on the same weekend of Taylor Swift Day, knowing that there's family that you could be with, we're just grateful. If you weren't here last weekend, um, let me catch you up to speed real quickly. Last weekend when we were together in this room, we talked about one particular proverb that presented us with the reality that inside of everything that is meaningful, there's also a mess there too. Inside of everything that is compelling, it comes with complications attached. We talked about how contrary to how it's presented to us on Instagram and ESPN and elsewhere, uh, progress, it isn't usually that pretty. And so the question in light of that then is if progress isn't pretty, are you willing to get ugly to get after what you want? Are you willing to go into the meaning knowing that there's a mess? Are you willing to go forward? And we left one another with the question hanging over us of uh, what do you want? I want to stay in that conversation tonight. But now thinking about what do you want, uh, I kind of want to shift it a little bit and talk about what it is that we need. I want to talk about what it is that we collectively need. To do so, I want to look at a text in... um, let me see if I can get this working. The text is in 1 Samuel 14, 22 through 24. Second thing is, I looked at the calendar. It said September. I thought that meant fall. I'm sweating like a pig up here right now. Please turn that camera off. Thank you. 1 Samuel 14, 22 through 20, uh, through 30. This text right here, just a little heads up as we head in, a little context I want to provide for you is that this is a text of an ancient military scene. I don't want you to get overly caught up in the language around um, God destroyed a certain people for the sake of another people because this is how ancient cultures discerned what the God and gods were like. So I don't want you to get into this place where it's, you get what I'm saying right now? Don't let that distract you from what is being said in this text. 1 Samuel 14, 22. When all the Israelites who had hidden the hill country of Ephraim heard on that day that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond Beth Avain. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed be anybody who eats food before the evening comes before I have avenged myself on my enemies. And so none of their troops, none of Saul's men, they didn't taste any food. Saul's oath was, was finding its origins in this need for, I don't want you to prematurely celebrate the victory of a battle while the war has yet to be won. Do not, do not start dancing when there's work still to do. Not everything is as perfect as it possibly could be. And so until the moment when it is, hold off on all food. Hold off on all nutrition. Stay off. Fast from it altogether. That's a tough, tough task. As I read this text and I was thinking about um, what it is it has to say, and I want to go here and then want to go elsewhere, but one thing in particular jumped off of this page. It struck me how in 1 Samuel 14, the one author wants to point out to us, the readers, that in one 24-hour period, Not once, but twice, there are two different experiences that the people encounter. In the same day, the people are saved, and they're also stressed. In the same day, the people are delivered, but they're also in despair. The people win the battle, 
But the battlers aren't really feeling like winners. There is this space between what they experienced on the beginning of the day and what they're experiencing at the end of the day. Now, if you can move past the distractions of a violent God or whatever might hold you back from hearing what this text has to say, listen to the question inside of it. What is it that would lead a people to be both blessed and burnt out in the same 24-hour period? And part of the answer, where the clarity comes from in a text like this is actually understanding where it is that people are being led. The text tells us that the battle moved into Beth of Vain, which is the name of one area that can mean two different things. On one hand, Beth of Vain can mean the house that is east of Beth El, which is the house of God, the house of sufficiency, the house of provision, the house where everything is as it should be. That is a, a surface level meaning of what Beth of Vain means, but it also means something more. Beth of Vain doesn't just mean a house that is east of Beth El. Beth a vein also means the house where people pant, and yet they find no provision. The house where people are constantly running on that treadmill, perspiring, but they're not getting anywhere. Beth of Vain is the place where people work 80-hour weeks to provide for a family that they do not know. Beth of Vain is the place where everybody is connected, but nobody really cares. Beth of Vain is the place where being busy is, is less of a feeling as it is a badge of honor. Beth of Vain is the grind. Beth of Vain is the place where the neighbors shoot on each other all day long. Beth of Vain is the place where if you are not tired, then clearly you're not trying. Can you imagine living in a place like Beth of Vain? Can you imagine that constant grind? Of course you can, because that's here, right? I mean, by the very fact that we have to have a holiday called Labor Day in response to our unhealthy relationship with labor practices, it tells you that how we are presently working, it's not really working. The same grind, the same exasperation, frustration, fragility, exhaustion that was in Beth of Vain where the people panted but never found their provision, it's also present here with us. We also have some of these same conditions. And I see this in us, I don't want to be dramatic, but about every Sunday night, in one conversation or another, I can hear the ache in some of your voices when you talk about going back into the office the next morning. I can sense the sadness when you tell me how long it's been since you went golfing with your friends. I can sense the anger how you haven't been able just to kick back and read those books or feel rested in a long time, how you are not sleeping, how you are not seeing your kids, how you're getting fast food at all places and all times, how you're never stopping for a meal with the people that you love most. Beth of Vain, that's there and that's here. And so on this Labor Day weekend, I do want to spend just a brief moment and talk about this because our busyness is leading us to be overworked adults and overscheduled kids and it's not about productivity, it's about this pathological lie that says that our value is in what we produce that leaves us completely unaware of what's actually been provided. Did you guys know, because I didn't prior to, so no judgment, but in 1965, there was a Senate subcommittee that was put together to talk about, like panic struck 
And they got together to talk about what is America going to look like in, say, 20 years. They're noticing all the technological advances that are happening all around the country. And they're saying, if we keep up this pace, like, yes, this is great that we're making all these breakthroughs, excited about what's coming in the tech world. But if we keep up this pace, people are going to be working 15-hour weeks. And what are we going to do with all these bored Americans having all this free time on their hands? That was a legitimate fear at the highest levels of government. Is that we, our biggest problem would be we'd have all this tech that would set us free and we'd have too much time. That's not how it played out, is it? Because if you think about the tech that they were so concerned about, it is actually the number one thing that contributes to the exasperation, that contributes to the fortifying of our place inside of Bethavane, where once people had to uh, put clothes on, get in the car, and drive to the other edge of town to do uh, meetings, to write letters, to do whatever. Now you just have to roll over in bed, grab your phone, and turn it off airplane mode. Everything is always with us, constantly connected, always at work. The labor hours just stretch on. The tech that they feared would make us lazy has only made the work last longer. And I want to read to you just a couple of different stats here to kind of show you what I mean. Americans, we are the people who clock the most hours uh, around the world. And it's, and it's head and shoulders, and it's a little sick that some of you just kind of puffed out your chest a little bit, like, yeah, that's right, red, white, and blue. But here's the truth. Americans work per year 137 more hours than the Japanese, 260 more hours than the British, and 500 more hours per year than the French. Yeah. We work more than any other nation in the world. The idea of a 40-hour week, it is long past gone, as 86% of American workers are now working longer than 40 hours per week. And as a culture, we've, we've validated this. We've deemed this to be a good thing, or at least an acceptable thing, and it shows up in the policies that have been made, but also in the policies that we've refused to make. Few, just few different examples. Let's talk about moms real quick. When moms have babies, we are the only country in the developed world that doesn't mandate employers to offer paid lead. Think about that. Think about that. In Finland, you can get up to three years. We throw moms parties, but we will cut their paycheck if they actually go to them. Another example, paid annual leave. The United States is the only developed nation that treats paid time off as a perk as, as opposed to a, a, an important part of what it means to be a human being. The only developed country that does that. And we'd like to fault government, the employers, for not providing enough paid time off. But the truth of the matter is that studies have shown that in the past year, those who were offered paid time off only 50% of the time that was offered was actually taken advantage of. As a culture, we do not value vacation. We reject the idea of rest, and yet we still are trying to find all these other ways that we can be refreshed, restored, and stable. And it does not make sense. It doesn't make sense that we can run 10,000 miles and then the only answer is to actually pause and receive good news and yet we don't want to take that because that's a pill that we've been taught is lazy to swallow. 
And so instead of following back to Bethel, the house of God, we run to Bethavain. And just like Saul, we move on to the next battle before the blessings of the last battle ever get to move in. That's not how it's supposed to go. That's not how this is supposed to work. We need rest. We need stability. I need rest. I need stability. And as we enter into the next season that lies ahead of us, I'm bringing this up tonight because I want this to be central to who we are as a community, who we are going to become. I want this to be a practice that we are proactively putting into display. I want us to be able to figure out what it looks like for us as a people and us as persons to make our way back from Bethavain to Bethel, the house of God. It's interesting to me that in the 6th century BC, when the ancients started talking about where do people come from, what is our origin story, what is, what is the tales that we will tell of our roots, our relationship to God, how does that all play out? When they started having these conversations, they were doing so in a place of exile, removed from their hometown, removed from their routines, removed from their temple. The only thing that stood from where they were to where they are is the practice of Sabbath of 15% of the week being time where you disconnect, where you stop, where you cease from working. One day of every seven where you stop, where you stop trying to produce and actually recognize the provision at hand. And so when the ancients tried to tell the story of the why behind this routine, the reason why they gave 15% of their time every week to this practice, they started telling the creation story. And there's an interesting thing that happens in Genesis 2-2 when they try to do so. Genesis 2-2, it reads like this. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. Does that make sense? Because it shouldn't. Right? Do you see the contradiction in play? For thousands of years, rabbis have looked at this text with confusion and mystery and enchantment and frustration. Because on one hand, it starts off and it says that God finished the work that he had been doing on the seventh day, which would imply that he still presently was working. If I start an email on Tuesday and I don't finish it on Friday, which has happened a time or seven, if that happens, I'm still writing the email on Friday. I am still doing work. That's what it says on one part of the text. The second part of the text, though, says that God ceased from working. And so which is it? Did God work or did God not work on the seventh day? How are we to understand what is actually being said about Sabbath, about rest, about this routine that we're supposed to be implementing in our lives when it's as confusing as that right there? How are we supposed to put that in? The, is it a work or is it not a work? Am I fasting or am I finishing? Which one is it going to be? When the rabbis, they're wrestling about this and they're trying to wrap their minds around the apparent contradiction inside of the text, they've revealed the power here of what's written about day seven by pointing to what happened on day six. They talk about how children were born on day six, how God, the divine, got dirty, went into the dust, breathed life and love into the dust and the dust started to dance, human beings came forth. We've heard this story time and time again. I told it again last week. There's a piece though that we often forget. After the dust starts to dance, comes to life. 
It says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I have heard 10,024 different sermons. I've given a few myself that's talked about God's call and how he tasks human beings with the work of creativity, with the work of making things happen, making beautiful art, making families of character, pursuing important work. That's what God said to them. But God didn't say that to them until he first blessed them. The word there for blessed is the word barak. It shows up all over the Psalms, except when the psalmist says it, we have translated that word as praise. It's a term of adoration. When the dust first started to dance and human beings emerged from the mud, God barocked them, God adored them, God praised them. You are beautiful. You are enough as is. You're enough, you're finished. Look at you go. God bless them. I know what that's like, because I remember this moment. I remember when I first got to hold my son Wyatt in my hands, and I remember being terrified, and I remember being overwhelmed. I remember him literally slipping through my arms right there with both moms looking on from the other side of the glass, terrified, overwhelmed. But I remember looking at Wyatt and thinking, I cannot believe how beautiful you are. I can't believe how good of a gift you are. I can't believe I get to call you mine. I barocked Wyatt in that moment. This is why we gather and Maggie and Christian, they lead us in songs this week, is that we are really just returning to God what first God returned, gave to us. We're just giving back to God the love that was first poured into us, the love that brought us to life. The rabbis, they point to this place right here. They point to the barocking that happens right here. But then they go back to that text and they show why. The reason why the rabbis point to day six when trying to understand what is happening here on day seven is because they don't want you to miss how the first day of the human being's life was the first day that God took off of work. You ever think about that? If human beings were, were created after the animals in the poetry of Eden, if human beings were created at some point in day six, then on day seven was their first full day of life. And so when the rabbis would wrestle with this, they would dream up imaginative situations. I'm gonna invite you to do so now. Might feel weird, close your eyes. A rabbi would say something like this. That morning on the seventh day was a morning unlike any other morning. Adam and Eve wake up to the smell of French pressed coffee in the other room. They can hear the sound of bacon crackling on the stove. They can hear God singing down the hallway. And by the time that they open their eyes, God is there, sitting next to them by their bed with a breakfast tray in his hands. And on this first day of their life, God says to these people, children, for your first day of life, I will not labor 
I will only love. I took the whole day off of work today. My calendar has been wiped clean. My pager has been turned off. The phone is out of sight and out of mind. Even the angels cannot find me right now. I'm off the grid. And I'm doing so because I want to spend this day with you as you are, where you are in this moment. I just want to enjoy you. I don't want to edit you. This is what the rabbis point to. You can open your eyes. In our culture, we think of rest as the ceasing of work. Rest is not the absence of creating. Rest is an act of creation. It's the culminating act. God is both resting and working on this day. And we know that by the word that is used for work in Genesis 2.2. Premature. Genesis 2.2. The word that's used for work there is not talking about toil. It's not talking about sticking shovels in the ground and digging ditches. It's talking about creative work. It's not bringing something out of nothing. It's shifting and ordering and editing and perfecting. It's the thing that made Saul say, we will not eat until everything is perfected as it needs to be. That's the kind of work that ceases on the seventh day. Do you understand the power in that work right there? Because it takes all these moments, all the battles that we go through, all the things that we invest in, the projects, the passions, the pursuits, and on one day of the week, we take a stand and we stop and we take some space and we say that this thing is what it is and I will enjoy it right now without needing to edit it any further. I will stop tinkering with it and I'm just going to take it in. I'm just going to enjoy it. And from one another, there's power in that because we are people, we are not projects. I've thought about this a lot this past week. Because that little baby that I was holding in my hands, the baby that for the past five years, Lauren and I, we have given our six days of work in on, trying to influence, trying to raise right, trying to make him some kind of person of character who's kind. And then came this day where we're dropping him off at preschool. And Sauce isn't into the idea, so he's holding on for dear life right there. But we get to this moment where after all this safeguarding of this one child that we love more than life, all this protecting of this this boy that we are so passionate and proud of, and then we leave him in this classroom and we have to walk away. We leave him at his desk and we have to turn our backs, not knowing what will come. And in doing so, We participate in the act of creation that we call rest because we cease from tinkering with him and we actually start to take him in. We grant him autonomy so we can actually be in relationship with him. You dignify the work that you've done thus far, the journey that's led you to where you are right now. It stabilizes you. It causes you to celebrate before everything is perfectly in order. The second part of why we do this though and why God did this and why this rhythm is so mandatory for all people who take their faith seriously and take their health seriously is because at the end of this day, Wyatt came home smiling. He he was in good shape. He had the time of his life, loved it. He learned things. He was excited. He even asked the girl if he could be her girlfriend. True story. Sorry, Savona. It's not real, it's just a fling. But they, uh, he came back great. 
And he didn't need me to hold his hand the whole time to do so. He didn't need Lauren to show him everything to keep him safe. This is something that I wish I would have learned in September of last year. Is that the act of rest is the act of creating separation between what you are creating and you as the creator. It restores proper relation to the thing itself. So you can trust that in these moments on the seventh day for 15% of your week, you can fall back into the arms of God and remember that this story that you are in, it started before you came, it'll go on once you're gone. It's bigger than you. Get some space from it. Get some space from it. All of the tinkering, how many times I left my kids, left my wife because I was trying to tinker with something with this place this past year. Work didn't stop on Friday. I, I didn't intentionally pause it before Saturday. It seeps, always connected, always seeping, never stopping, never celebrating, always ancient, never aware of the abundance, always trying to produce, never aware of what's provided. And there's such an absence of trust inside of these acts of tinkering that help us to actually recognize that God's in control. That God has it, even if you, you think you need to, but you don't. That's the beauty of the 15%. That's why I'm taking it on this next year. This is why every six days there will be another day where I'm going to cease. I didn't start working on what we're going to talk about tonight until this morning. Because I have to start appreciating and not just trying to accumulate. There has to be a shift. Our journeys, be it as a church, be it as people in your career, passions, pursuits, whatever it might be, the sustainability rests on whether or not you are able to actually properly stop and restore proper relations. In that text in 1 Samuel, everybody goes along with what Saul is saying, except for one person, Saul's own son. Isn't that interesting? Of all the people who would have had to have paid for his dad's attitude, it would have been him, the one who was absent. He, met, he experienced all those nights at the family dinner table where dad never showed up. He experienced all those baseball games growing up where dad was never in the stands. He experienced coming home from school and dad not asking him about his day. The one person who goes a different direction than his father commanded everybody to do was his own son, Jonathan. The entire, entire army entered into the woods and there was honey on the ground. And when they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan, he had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hands and he dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes were brightened. When you think about the life of Jesus, in all the different times where Sabbath is the stage that's being set, Jesus is always breaking the rules. He's healing somebody who is sick, crippled, sore, tired. Jesus is always crossing lines to heal people on the Sabbath. And for the longest time, I thought that this was Jesus just exposing the legalism of the Sabbath keepers, but I don't think that's just it. What if the purpose isn't just to expose the legalism of the Sabbath keepers? What if Jesus is actually trying to show us how Sabbath is key to our healing? 
What if Jesus is actually trying to show us how Sabbath is the weekly reminder where we stop and recognize that there is honey on the ground and you need to eat? God has been far too good to each of us to take that for granted. This year, will you take seriously the practice of Sabbath? One of the, mind you, Ten Commandments, one of the most central practice of the ancient Israelites. Will this be a practice that you'll participate in, preserve, perpetuate, believe in, hold on to? This year, will you be about your own healing as we move forward? Let me pray. Christ, Lord, you are good and we are grateful. Lord, we, uh, we are looking for peace and we know that it has something to do with our pace. How we are looking for healing and we know that there is medicine that is readily available. God, I pray that we as, as a Christian people would recapture our peculiarity, God. That we wouldn't confuse Christianity and capitalism. God, that we wouldn't confuse the pace of society and the pace of our own spiritual lives. God, that you would give us the courage to prioritize the healing that you have to offer. And that we would be in response faithful stewards of the gifts that you have given and participate in them with rhythm. Christ, you are good and we are grateful. And all God's children, we say together, amen.